0: It happens, you don't know why, you're looking for the why, there is no why. You have to accept it, you move on. You know at the end of the day even if you win games of football sometimes you lose your job what you do need to do as a coach as a manager is self-reflect did i do this well enough can i do this better sometimes you know you go into a football club and and you look and you want to play this certain way and players can't do that you see the game differently you've got a different style a different identity a different mindset different mentality Do you try and change it too quick or do you go with the old well if you go with the old then why was there a
1: change Cole Robinson is a retired international footballer and former head coach with an extensive career both as a player and a manager. Born in Wales, Robinson enjoyed a notable playing career with clubs like Wolverhampton Wanderers, Portsmouth, Sunderland, Norwich City, Toronto FC and New York Red Bulls. Transitioning to coaching, Robertson managed Vancouver Whitecaps, New York Jets and Western Sydney Wanderers. His coaching journey continued with DC United and Birmingham City, where he served as a first team coach alongside football legend Wayne Rooney. Now he's on this podcast to reveal insights into his experiences on the field, coaching endeavours and more. We always start at the very beginning of your journey growing up in Wales. How did football become a passion for you?
0: Well, my late father, he was the one that introduced me to it uh, in the backyard, just kicking a ball around just to try and take my energy away from me before bedtime. So uh, I think I was two or three years of age at the time when he would get me out until it was dark and then it was dark. I had no choice but to go to bed. So I think that was the first initial um, impact of kicking a ball around. Uh, Obviously then layering into that from when I was a young... Whippersnapper, as they call them, um, kicking balls against his greenhouse and breaking glasses of panes and windows and stuff, which didn't go down too well at the in the early stages.
1: And when was that realisation, Carl, when you realised you were very good at football and had the opportunity to maybe pursue a career? Was there a moment reflecting upon that time? Yeah,
0: do you know, what? I don't think there was an exact age. I remember when I was nine, ten years of age, I was, I got called up for a, a local select team between the Welsh and the Scottish in the Ian Rush tournament in Aberystwyth, which still goes on now, uh, the Celtics, they, they put a team together and I was selected for as one of five Welsh boys along with five Scottish boys. Um, and I was two years younger than the rest. So I just assumed then at that time I was seen as being not a bad player. Uh, and then from that stage, probably then it started to get a little bit more serious.
1: And in terms of that journey, was there anyone that stood out in terms of maybe mentoring you or guiding you on that experience to maybe eventually get into a football club and have that opportunity? Is there anyone that stands out?
0: Yeah, I get asked that a lot. I think most players, ex-players get asked that a lot. Who was the biggest influence? And I think anyone would be amiss to say without the appearance. Uh, my mum and dad were huge for me because they uh, you know, drove me everywhere. Long hours, long days, as well as working two jobs each. So it was a little bit hard for them in the early stages. When I was young, I didn't realise how hard it was for them. As you get a little bit older, you take a step back and realise what they sacrificed and gave up for you. But from the football in terms, there was probably two people that influenced me. The, the first one was Mike Smith, the old Welsh manager. He was um, a big figure, father figure in my in my life. He advised me when I was 14 years of age not to join Wolverhampton and stay with him because they had a school of excellence, soccer school of excellence in Newtown, which was 26 miles from where I live in Dodd doddwells um, And he would coach me uh, individually. Obviously, uh, I was I was not a bad player at the time and I was uh, getting a little bit of interest, but he made the promise that if I stayed with him for two years, then he would open up more avenues. So, and certainly that's what happened. And then the second one was uh, Ron Jukes, who was the chief scout of... Wolverhampton Wanderers. He was the one uh, when I was twelve years of age in the Aberystwyth the Irish tournaments. Saw me first of all when I was twelve, and then was willing to wait for me when I was fourteen to then join when I was sixteen years of age. And I still remember the first conversation I had with Ron Jukes at sixteen when I signed the scholarship form. I was with my mum and dad. Uh, I went into the office. I was super excited, Uh, a young kid from Mid Wales. And the background of Mid Wales, Slandering Don dodd where I'm from, is no one probably since 1958 had become a professional sports person, professional footballer. So it's impossible to do. No one does it. I was told no one's going to do it. And I made it a challenge. I made it paramount for me to try and be the first one just to prove to all the young kids then that come out of that area that there is a chance. And I remember walking into the office uh, with a big smile on my face. I was so happy because a young kid from Wales was going to sign for Wolverhampton Wanderers, which was a fantastic club back then and, and still is now. And the first thing he said to me, he hit me straight between the eyes. He went, Carl, he goes, it's a happy day for you. He goes, but I have to be honest with you. I don't think you're going to make it. Uh-huh. And I was like looking at him going, are you serious? And I looked at my mum and dad and, I said, what do you mean? He said, you're too quiet, you're too small, you're too nice, and that doesn't get anywhere. He goes, so unfortunately, I'm telling you, you're not going to make it. Three weeks, so I signed. I didn't want to sign. I wanted to go back to Mid Wales, to my comfort zone. For three weeks, I stayed with a a host family. I hated it. I cried every night. You know, when you're young, you don't admit you cry. When you're old, you cry at films. You cry at everything. And I can openly admit now that I did cry when I was 16 years of age for three weeks nonstop. I wanted to leave. I was not happy. I I wasn't wanted. I felt uh, anger that I'd been deceived. So for three weeks, I didn't want to be there. And then eventually I got my head down because my dad said he wouldn't come and pick me up and I wasn't allowed to come home. 12 months later, I got offered a, a young pros contract. And the day that I went in to sign there, I wanted to say to Ron Jukes, I proved you wrong, didn't I? And my dad said, you should say that. So I did. I walked into the meeting with the the execs at Walls to sign my first professional contract. And he goes, have you got anything to say? And I said, yeah. I said, I proved you wrong. He looked at me and he went, shook his head. I said, no, I did. You told me I wasn't going to make it. And I, he said, no, I knew you were going to make it. You didn't believe you were going to make it. And I look back at that now and it was the best bit of advice I'd ever been given in such a short period because he needed me to believe that I was going to make it. And probably coming from an area uh, that doesn't produce players, coming from a nice area where, you know, you can leave your back door open was the niceness in me. And he saw that and he knew that. So he needed to toughen me up. And the way he toughened me up was, was telling me that, but 12 months later it was a piece of magic from him it made me grow barriers it made me put up a wall and I'll show that attitude of I'll prove people wrong and that was my start on my journey.
1: Do you find just on that experience do you find yourself having a lot of transferability into your coaching profession now around dealing with players and motivating players and thinking about imposter syndromes and belief etc do you do you relate to that experience to enable you to to motivate?
0: Yeah I do without a doubt and, and again the biggest thing with the with difference between coaching and playing is when you're a player, you just think about yourself. Uh, You're worried about your, your role within the team and what you can do to make sure you're in the team. When you're a coach, manager, you have to get to know people. Everyone's different. They're from different cultures, different backgrounds. You don't know what they've been through in their life or what they haven't. You need to actually get an understanding of the human. And if you get an understanding of the human and you're able to connect with them on that level, then you're able to guide your message into whatever the f- football-specific message is, whether they're playing, whether they're not playing, whether you're selling them, whether you're trading them, whether you're doing all these things with them. But you've got to get to know the individual because not everyone's the same. I've never met two people at the same.
1: How did you find Wolves then? So obviously you had the opportunity to establish yourself and, and kind of settle in and play professionally and then loan moves. How did you find that, that process of of trying to integrate yourself in the professional game as a player? Uh, do you know, it, it, it was hard. You know, I can't sit here and say it was easy because, you
0: know, I went through some difficult times, you know, some insecurities I had confidence-wise. I didn't play well in games. And I was trying to overanalyze things. And and the simple thing I used to get told all the time is think about what's ahead of you, next game, next session, next game, all of these things. And at the time, you're you worried about what people think. You're worried about what people say. Every message from your coach is you read too much into it. Yeah. So you, I look at that back then and I think, right, it was the best upbringing for me because it made me resilient. It made me understand, take a little bit of time to step back and look at the bigger situation rather than just what's at the end of my nose, which is literally all players want to do. They think about themselves. They don't think about the bigger picture. When you're out of the team, sometimes you become a better player when you're out of the team, which is crazy. By not touching a ball. So but it made you look at different areas, different aspects of your game. And and going into a Wolverhampton wall, Wanderers wall locker room with the likes of Steve Bull and, and Don Goodman and Andy Much and Paul Birch and all these players, legends, proper, proper people, good people to this day, uh, certainly helped.
1: And in terms of obviously you mentioned then being a critical thinker and really dissecting down games and understanding the game better whilst outside of uh whilst you know, looking in and not playing. Do you think that has maybe been some of the attributes that enabled you to be critical within your coaching and kind of looking and dissecting the game differently? I'm just interested on how that aligns with what you do today and how maybe your analytical framework of thinking has made you become effective in terms of coaching.
0: Yeah, it's it's a really, really good point And it's something that I do use. You know, when, you, when you're starting off your football career and your journey, you know, you think you've got skill sets and you're very good at certain things. And then you see your mate who comes into the locker room as well. It's better than you at certain areas. And then there's this balance of do you work on your strengths um, more rather than your weaknesses? Or do you just work on your weaknesses? And and there's no right answer with that. The reality is you got to work on every aspect of your game. Not just your technical and tactical, but you've got to work physicality as well. You've got to be in the gym. You've got to get as fit as you can. But you've got to also work on the mental side, which I think has become a big factor over the last couple of years. Because 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I was playing, not many people talked about the mental side of the game. You know, players were just dealt with to get on with it and deal with it themselves. Um, Which, in a way, you learn to be resilient. But people were vulnerable back then. You know, but they just didn't want to admit that and they couldn't admit that. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what to do. So you just got on with it. But I look at the the coaching journey that I've been on. And when I started as a young coach 14 years ago, I thought I had in my mind what I wanted to do, what I wanted to become, how I wanted to play, the style, the identity, all of these facets that are part of your game model that you have. And then you go out and play and then you lose a game of football. Or you're not successful in the season, and then you think, right? You try and refine it. So nothing changes in coaching to play You have to redefine. You have to limp, change little things, little aspects that make you a better person. But the biggest thing I take out of coaching is self-reflection. You got to look at what you did right and what you did wrong. Vulnerability is is not a trait that people like to actually open up to and admit to, but it's the best thing for your learning if you're able to do it. And be open about it, and then take a little bit of constructive criticism, but use it in the right way. It makes you think wider rather than just channel thinker. So it's definitely uh, something that's been brought into my coaching.
1: You mentioned earlier in the podcast about being homesick, and then you mentioned the keyword vulnerability. Then in in your answer, how did that impact you in terms of going out on loan? Because obviously you had a range of different loan spells, relocating, moving to different places that. Uncertain nature of whether you're gonna play, different types of managers. How did you cope with that as a player? Yeah, the way
0: I looked at it was I
1: I gave everything I could to become a young professional
0: footballer. Everything I could. I would spend I'd catch the bus at 6:30 in the morning in Wolverhampton and I wouldn't get home till seven o'clock at night. And I did that constantly for two years. Even when I was playing in the first team, I still used to catch the bus. I still used to clean pairs of boots. I had six players that I used to clean pair of boots because At Christmas time, they would tip you and they would give you 10 quid a week. And then at Christmas, they'd give you 100 pounds. So I thought the way for, for me to actually make money and be a little bit more happy and to get to know them was clean their boots. Because if I looked after them, what that did was that taught me that if you look after your boots, you look after your body, you look after yourself, you become a better person. So that was a trait that I had in me. When I got the opportunity to go on loan, my first loan was Shrewsbury Town. When I was trying to break into the first team at Wolves, I didn't. You know, I was probably fifth or sixth choice. I got the opportunity at Shrewsbury. And I just took it because I wanted to play football. And then from Shrewsbury, it was great. I played at Wembley. We lost against Rotherham. To this day, it still haunts me. Um, But then I went back to Wolves. I established myself. And then I lost my way a little bit um, before I left. But when Wolves, because it's a big club, wanted to sign big players, you're talking about Alex Ray's, you're Colin Cameron's, you're... Yes, Simon Osborne's from Reading. They had, uh they were signing three or four big name players in the midfield area, and I was a midfield player. I just felt I needed a change at twenty-three, four years of age. So, but going on loan to Rotherham, Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, I wanted to play. You know, your career is short, all right? And there's this, it gets thrown out a lot in football. It's like players just want to sit and take their money. I was never like that because I didn't have nothing when I was growing up. I mean, I used to use my brother's trainers to play football because I didn't have nothing. So I wanted to maximize every possible opportunity because I knew one day that my playing would stop and I wouldn't be able to play again, whether that was because I wasn't good enough, wasn't wanted, or was just too old. So when I got an opportunity to go on loan for a couple of months or a month to go and play, I was never going to turn that down.
1: And that's what shaped me into the person I am today. How did you find Portsmouth when you moved there? Obviously, the successful period for them during that time. It was. It was great. I went on a
0: free transfer from Wolves, to be fair. I gave up my testimonial at Wolverhampton because they they did offer me a three-year contract. In hindsight, you always say, well, should you have done that or not? I live with no regrets. You know, every decision I make was for the best at the time. And I still, to this day, think it was the right thing to do. I went in with Harry Redknapp, Jim Smith, Kevin Bond. Brilliant people, you know. Got the best act players, you know, some of their man management skills and tactics were unbelievable. Harry was just a genuine good human being. Um, and I played the first 16, 15, 16 games there at uh, at, at Portsmouth, and it was great until we signed Tim Sherwood. And Tim Sherwood signed from Tottenham, world top player, top, top professional, top midfield player. Uh, and Harry said to me, Tim's going to be my number one choice, Robbo, and maybe you might need to go on loan. Uh, I lasted for about two or three weeks because I wanted to try and fight. And I realized in training, saw in training, that Tim was on a different level. Uh, and he was a quality player, but he was also was quite happy to have me push him. Uh, he was a great trainer. He was always giving you advice. And I thought, do you know what? I want to play games. So I went on loan based upon that. But when I went back to at the end of the year when we got promoted, I was still part of that, which was great. It was my first promotion because we hadn't quite done that at Wolves. Um, I was still part of it, but then I made the decision in the early part of the second year to to go and find something a little bit more secure for me, albeit in the championship.
1: And in terms of obviously finding football clubs and selecting coaches to play for, obviously you mentioned yeah, the extreme, extreme rewards of potential contracts, etc. But are you looking at managers that have a similar value set to you? Are you looking at you know football clubs in terms of who you can Play for and who you can represent in terms of the manager is that comes into your mind as a professional footballer to ensure that you get the opportunity to to grow and learn as a, as a player. I'm just interested on that concept. Yeah,
0: I, I think it does. Uh, but as a player, sometimes you don't get the choice unless you're at a certain high level, the elite level, where you can get to choose between Barcelona or Paris Saint Germain. If you're talking, you're in the championship. There's probably six or seven teams that would probably want you. And that was the case. Sometimes the team that you're at. So when I was at Portsmouth, I went to Rotherham. That was my first loan. And I went there for three months. because And they were bottom of the table at the time. Ronnie Moore was a manager, brilliant person. They had cold showers. You know, even in the home dressing room, it was really, really poor conditions. Uh, but I went in there and I saw a team spirit that was second to none. They didn't want for anything. They understood, you know, their jobs. They were glad to be footballers. Um, but the spirit and the camaraderie between the group was amazing and it was one of the best loans I had because I enjoyed being there I enjoyed my football you know yes I had to take my kit home and wash it myself living in a hotel but that was fine that you know that's part of you growing up it's part of you grounding as a person not taking everything for granted and, and you look at that so sometimes clubs don't want to lend you or loan you to other teams that you might be in competition with and it's a circumstance as well as a player you get a feel when you talk to a manager. I have a conversation with you and it's is it a warm conversation where i make you feel really really good in yourself? Is it a conversation where i don't give you i don't you don't get the connection with me where you feel that we've got this relationship just from one conversation because i think nowadays if you look at any time a player moves, 9 times out of 10 they say they 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 moved because after the first conversation with the manager they knew they knew and all it is, is warmth, showing them a bit of love that clear, how important they will be in the team and what their role and responsibility will do at getting them to the next level. Because when you're not in a team, it's quite lonely sometimes because you don't get the direction, you don't get the warmth, you don't get the arm around your shoulder from the manager because he focus on these starting 11 because managers deal with results. So Then when you speak to another manager about moving and suddenly he shows you a little bit of care, he's compassionate. He shows you a bit of warmth and he tells you everything that's good about yourself and what you're going to do, you actually want to play for him.
1: What are your thoughts on the modern footballer then, Carl? Because obviously you mentioned, you know, you used to get on a bus um, whilst you were at Wolverhampton, you mentioned living in a hotel, et cetera. Obviously the game's changed and modified. There's a little bit more stability in that sense, potentially in, in kind of the academy system, et cetera. What are your thoughts on the modern game on how that balances your approaches to coaching and how... You know, driven and motivated you are in that period is very different to maybe the outlook of a of a of a newer generational player. What what are yeah. your thoughts on that?
0: Well, society has changed, and all of the older generation of footballers. And I speak to many many people nowadays, and sometimes they get a little bit frustrated with it because when you're not inside football and you see all of the givens that the young the young adults of today get given, they get frustrated because we didn't have them. Uh, and I try and explain to them, it's society, you know, there is a change, there is a shift, you know, modern day footballers, young footballers, academy footballers, category one, category two, get given a lot of things, you know, they don't realise at the moment how lucky they are, um, but they will do over the course. And when we look back at it in 20 years time and there's another conversation, you know, it'll, it will accelerate again, you know the older footballers, the older generation look back at it is it made them resilient. They understood what they needed to do. They needed to fight their way through adversity. You know, the modern generation, sometimes they haven't learned that. They haven't seen that. They haven't dealt with that. That's not their fault. You know, that's the way society is. You know, Uh, I, I look at my own personal situation. I have two wonderful kids. I didn't have nothing when I was growing up and my kids now get spoiled because that's what parents do. They spoil them. But I, So my generation changed. My dad treated my mum treated me differently to what I treat my kids because it's society. So you have to adapt and you have to accept it and you have to understand it. But the key thing to it is about getting to know them. You have to immerse yourself in the society of what is today. If you're going to try and change it because this is the way it was done back when you were a, a young one, you will lose. There's no point in doing that. You'll waste time and energy. Um, and experience doing that. So you have to immerse yourself in it. You have to understand it. You have to explain to them, right, that's great that you've got this, but you will be left out of a team at some time. A manager will not play you at some time. You'll get released. You know, players that get released, if you look at the modern day player, especially the ones in the Premier League at the moment that have been at different clubs and been released at an early age, they've become resilient because they had a little bit of adversity and they had a setback. You will get setbacks in your life. But how can you try and teach setbacks
1: when you haven't reached them yet? It's very, very hard. And I've not met anyone that can do that yet. So in terms of adapting and transferability, when you reflect back on your career as a player, what was the incentive to go into coaching? Was this something that was a bit of a light bulb moment during your coaching, uh, during your playing journey when you learned off the likes of Harry Redknapp and other managers? Did you did you want to do it or did you fall into it? I'm just interested on in how that came about for you and... and Obviously, from a cultural perspective, it's different because you've had experiences in Australia, America, et cetera. I'm just interested yeah. in how that came about.
0: It was literally, uh, when I left Wolves, I had a number of managers. I had Graham Taylor, Graham Turner, Mark McGee, Colin Lee, John Wood, all at Wolhampton Wanderers. And it was great. Five five managers in seven, seven years. Then I went to Portsmouth, Harry Redknapp, and everyone knows about how Uh, influential Harry is and then during my loan spells then I had Chris Turner I had Neil Warnock and I had Mick McCarthy and then probably when I was about 25 26 the way that Harry Redknapp managed his locker rooms was phenomenal and then I went to Sunderland with Mick McCarthy and when you talk about leadership and you talk about team first mentality and you talk about work ethic and you talk about rolling your sleeves up and fighting he was able to influence players that weren't playing, which was an incredible trait that he had. He was able to generate this culture and environment and, and get everyone rowing in the same direction, everyone on the same page. And at that time, I thought, right, okay, I'm really good. And I remember Mick would always say to me, Robbo, you're really, really good at making other people around you better. And it was a sentence that he gave me. And by the way, at that time, he left me out of the team on the Saturday which was incredible. And at the time, I didn't like him. You know, I thought, well, what are you doing? And the reason he said that to me was because he was going to hit me with disappointment, which he did by leaving me out. But he knew that I would react positively and I would train properly to make the players ahead of me make sure they're on their game because they knew that I was angry, mad, disappointed about not being playing, And they couldn't drop their levels. And at that time, I thought, do you know what? It's about man management. Coaching is about managing people. In every business, it's about managing people and how you treat people. Speak to people as you want to be spoken to. So 26 years of age, I thought, right. So now I, my mind started going and thinking, I know culture. I know environment. Now I'm going to see how it breaks down tactically. So then I started making notes on Mick and started making notes on his his formations, his teams, what his training sessions. During that period, I was I uh, was involved with Wales, and Wales had Mark Hughes as a manager, and then they had a change, uh, and then went to John Toshak. Well, John Toshak, fantastic human being, first of all. Fantastic person. His mind was second to none in relation to when you sat down and had a conversation with him and talked about football. He would take you into areas and often different tangents that I didn't know existed, so at 26 27, with the culture and spirit and the camaraderie generated by Harry and Mick that you needed to do, as well as the tactical mind of John Toshak, who managed Liverpool, Real Madrid, won the La Liga with Real Madrid. And you think, wow, in their minds, they are steps ahead of everyone else because they know what they want. They're very clear. There's a lot of clarity in it. So, notes and notes, years of taking notes and books and training sessions. But why I started doing them? Because you know, I, I got. A, I was a first-team player, I'd played 200 games in my life, and I thought, oh, I would change that, so I'd make a note of it, and I would do that differently, and I wouldn't have done it with that numbers, and I would have made it a little bit bigger, and I would have changed that, and I would have adapted this session and added this layer into it. If it was a transition session, I would, rather than do an attacking transition, I would do a defensive one to an attacking one, and I would try and layer it a little bit. And the books and books died, and my mind died, and then when I left Sunderland, Mick had sent to me, you'll be a manager one day, Robbo. And I said, really? And he goes, you think like a manager. So that was probably the first time when he actually uh, admitted to me when he left me out that I was a good person, a good mind, and he knew the direction I wanted to go. Having said that, managers make people around them better. And I did that as a player, probably to the detriment of myself sometimes. I didn't think about myself, but wherever I went, I knew that wherever I played, the people next to me enjoyed playing with me and I carried that into my management.
1: would you say you were quite an emotional player Carl
0: I was but I didn't show it I was I was a fighter internally you know there was a hunger a desire inside me I wasn't nasty again but I had if there was a challenge to be made I would make it and if there was a ball running down the sideline I would purposely slow up to make sure that I would catch you and the ball and put you into row, row Z as they, they call it <laughs> So I had that in me. Was I a fighter? Was I a... No, I wasn't. But I like to try and get in people's heads. You know, I was one of these that if I knew you as well, I I enjoyed playing against my mates because when I enjoyed playing against my mates, then I tried to influence them in their mind because I not just one person, I tried to say, well, you know, why is he telling me this about you and that one? And tried to get them to argue with each other, take their minds off their game. So it was, it was the mental side I was trying to touch into at that time when I was playing against my friends. So I didn't show emotion too much. I'm very, and I still don't now, you know, as, as a coach manager, you know, you're passionate in what you do, but you don't need to jump around and swing your arms around and do all these things. Yes, of course, sometimes emotion takes over you and you can't control it. But I think you have to be self-driven. You have to have your mind. You have to be clear with who you are as a person and what you are and be you because if you're not and you're trying to be someone else, then unfortunately you'll tripled.
1: that kind of leads me to, to my next point because I'm interested on in how you set standards for yourself obviously from a playing career but going into a management career where you've got standards and values on how you perceive the game to be played out whether that's on a match day whether that's at training and if those standards are not set by maybe the players well, what kind of things do you do to ensure that there is a a logic and a togetherness to try and you know meet those standards and collaborate effectively and and lead effectively because obviously like you've just mentioned you, you know you want to give up 100% and you've 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 looked at maybe the emotional perspectives and what motivates you to to become a better footballer But obviously you you're trying to transpire that onto others i'm just interested in how that works because like we said as well different generations different types of people how how do you work uh, with that well again I, th- I think whenever you whenever you go for a job
0: you know and there's so, many, there's so much turnover in jobs and whether it's manager's jobs or coaching roles, first-team coaches, assistant managers, all these you know, owners of football clubs they want they want to see or they want to hear. You want to play open, expansive, free-flowing, attacking football, 4-3-3, we want to be high-pressing and all that. That's the reality of what people want. The reality of what people can do is a little bit different because everyone sees the Man City, the Liverpools, the bigger teams that are able to do it, the Brighton's, you know, But there's other teams that are really, really successful that aren't able to do it, right? So each manager has their own non-negotiables. They have their own skill sets as a person. They have their team around him, which is almost as important. You've got to be able to delegate as a manager. You've got people around you that are as good, if not better, at certain facets within the game. Your team of coaches, staff that is needed has to have different skill sets to you. You know, But the one fundamental thing that you also also have to have is trust. You know, you have to have a trust factor and a respect factor. The first day you walk in as a manager, as a coach, you set the standards. The standards must be set. And they're set by you. So you turn up on time. You be there on time. You make sure that you're able, willing to help. You know, when I first took my first coaching job in Vancouver in Major League Soccer, I used to stay behind and help out with the equipment. You know, I used to put the cones out and i purposely... Not purposely, but they used to wipe you know give me a bit of stick. I would ask eventually my staff would set out the equipment and that and I would go out and I would move it by two yards. Because in my mind, I wanted to set everything up right. It needed to be perfect. But at the end of the session, I would pick it up and I would go and do that. And the reason why I would go and do that is because if I was the if I was the manager and I was the last one to pick up the cones when it was raining and go and pick up the balls when it was raining. I'm going to get the ball behind the fence when it was raining. Every staff member cannot drop their levels. I'm willing to do it. And I and as the manager of the football club, or the head figure, you set the standards. So there's no excuse for anyone. So if people leave equipment there or people don't turn up on top, you have the ability and you have the strength to say to them, that's not acceptable. You're not on the same page as me. I'm willing to do this. You need to be willing to do this. So I think the first day you walk into a football club is the way the standards are set as you get a little bit older and get a little bit more experience you understand then you need to listen because as a manager you need to listen not just to your staff but you need to listen to your players you know and i had this in Vancouver again uh we were very successful you know we had a skill set of players built to be a very good attacking transitional team we had Alfonso davis we had christian tcherer we had Jordi Reina, we had kai Kuma, we had some fantastic talented attacking players um but we wanted to, it was a trend going through football about trying to be a possession-based team, trying to create more. We would end up with 40 to 45% possession. But that wasn't the silkies. That wasn't the fun times. So you need to try and generate more. So I remember we, in 2017 season, we had 60% of possession in eight games. We lost seven and drew one out of that eight games of dominating teams. And I remember sitting there going home and thinking to myself, what? Well, well, we've got to continue to do it, continue to do it. But as a manager, you judge on results, as you know. And then you think about it and go, right, you need to stop the trend. Do we want to give up the ball? Because teams knew that they were giving us and they were trying to flip on the head of what we were good at. So I spoke to the players and we, we had a, a big team meeting. And I said, guys, listen, I'm open to see you're you're the players. You need to play what you want to do. We can do anything. All right. This is what I see. This is what I want. This is what I expect. But little tweaks here and there. So we did. We set our. We we gave the first pass to him, We set a little bit our line a little bit deeper. We changed our pressing triggers from really high up from goal kicks. We come twenty yards deeper. We actually set our build up specific, specifically on one side. So we were able to identify we're going to build up on the right and we're going to play three, four, five passes here to exploit the left with Alfonso Davis, who was coming from a left back position which I was told at the time he wasn't a left-back, which now he plays for Bayern Munich as a left-back. So maybe he was a left-back. So all of these little nuances within your your mind, you speak to, but you get help along the way from staff, from players. So again, it's, it's it's about evolving as time. It's about understanding. It's about listening. And the more and more older you get, you tend to listen more, you tend to speak less. And that's why the older managers, you get very few words from them, because as you said, they they, they understand what they need to do to be successful. They take a step back. They have first-team coaches, assistant managers that do all the talking, all the shouting, all the ranting. And they, they're just the, the logical ones who guide the direction that the team is going to go. Mm.
1: I'm inter- I think it's interesting how you lead by example. And you mentioned that holistic approach uh, and kind of having a sense of al- giving your players a sense of autonomy to really understand and dissect certain things that are happening during a game. And you mentioned results-driven... Yeah. Um, perspectives and how that might shape and funnel your outlook towards um, a certain game or a certain training session. Did, does that differ across different countries, or is that the same philosophy stayed strong with you going into you know Vancouver, uh, you know Sydney, and obviously Birmingham City? Is that kind of changed and modified during your journey? I'm just interested on how that might differ down to maybe cultural differences and different situations on where you land the job and the, the position the clubs in. Well, th- there is. Listen, there is, a, you know, there's no two doubts about it. There is a
0: totally different footballing culture in different countries, right? The, the game is the same, we know that. Obviously, the, the finances are different. You know, in Major League Soccer, is it's a very different beast over there. You know, I went and joined in 2007 and I was there till 2019. And then I took two years out. I wanted to try something different in Asia, which is why I went to Australia. Uh, then COVID happened. So that set, back, set it back a little bit. And then I'll come back. And I went back into Major League Soccer again with with Wayne and, and DC United. But the the setup of Major League Soccer is like uh, American sports, like the NBA and the NFL, the NHL, all of these. And it's salary cap driven. And it's a, it's a knowledge that you need to know. And it's a knowledge that you need to have. And I immersed myself in that when I was a player there at Toronto when I first went. Because uh, Mo Johnson was the manager, the Scottish uh, legend, as you call him. John Carver spent a little bit of time over there from from my time at Toronto to then New York Red Bulls with Hans Backer, who was Sven and Erickson's assistant. And then my time in Vancouver, uh, it was a brilliant learning for me. And what I wanted to do, I've always been a learner. I've always wanted to tap into managers' minds, coaches' mind, ask them what they're thinking, be inquisitive. And I always used to take the knowledge on board, write it down, make notes, all of these things to try and shape me for what I wanted to become. But the salary cap thing is a big thing over there. And, you know, f- European coaches, foreign coaches that go over there sometimes find it difficult because you can't just go and sign any player you want. There's international spots, there's, there's general allocation money, there's town money, there's under twenty two initiative players. You know, you've got these homegrown players. You've got a judge. You've got to juggle the cap the way you want to. So, uh, I've got a knowledge of that inside out, and it's great. And it is like playing a little bit of football manager, like everyone says. But you have to be strategic with it. You have to understand that you need to generate to accumulate you sometimes when you're successful as in most American sports you probably don't strengthen your roster because your players get bonuses because you do well and you get the worst pick of the draft which obviously is you unfortunate because you do get rewarded for a little bit of failure over there if you finish last but they're trying to make it as competitive as it can which is a brilliant structure um, then you go to Australia and they do the similar thing on a smaller scale and then you come back into the championship which is arguably the best in the world you know everyone talks about the Premier League which is brilliant I know that but it's so even the championship uh, and then it's a different kettle of fish again so you look at it do I change? No do, do clubs the circumstances change? Yes and also your role changes based upon what your role is as coach whether you're the manager whether you're the assistant whether you're a first team coach whether you're a support coach, all of these things change as well. But me, my my mind, non-negotiables, I still try and put smiles on faces. I still try and make enjoyable training session. I still demand work ethic off players and staff. There's a direction that we all want to go. You all need to be rowing in the same direction and you need to do the little things because if you do the little things correctly, the little things become big things. So having that mentality of, speaking to people the way you want to be speaking to, picking up things if you leave them, picking up if your teammate leaves them, but telling them he can't do that is a culture-driven thing that you want to try and get into football clubs.
1: You mentioned Wayne Rooney, DC United, Birmingham City. What did you learn off him during that period of, of working collaboratively together?
0: Well, first, he's a brilliant person. You know, I, I, yes, I've played against Wayne a few times during my career, um, but working with him, he's he's got a special mind. He understands football in, in a way which, again, I mentioned John Tosha. When I was working with him with the Welsh football team, he used to think so far ahead. Wayne is very similar. He thinks about things three, four, five steps ahead. He's very, uh, how can I say this? He's very, he's he's matter of fact. He knows he's very clear with what he wants, which is brilliant for coaches because you know that there's not, oh, should I have done this? Should I do this? He's clear with what he wants. Uh, he's he's off the cuff in relation of, he senses something and he does it straight away. And usually nine times out of 10, he's right. He gets this feeling in game, which is a which is a ma- a massive skill set, which all coaches, the top coaches probably have. He's able to adjust and, and things like that and see it in advance. Um, but he's just a genuine good person. Uh, that was the thing that took me to him. When I spoke to him, I knew I wanted to work with him and work for him. Then when you get on the football pitch and you listen to him and his conversations and, and talk tactically about the game, what he sees, how he wants to do it, the way he wants it to go, there's always a plan in place. You know, unfortunately, our time in Birmingham was short. We know that. We, we probably didn't win enough games of football. There was a plan in place. Unfortunately, that plan now... Has gone, we understand that it's uh, a results driven business sometimes, but there was a lot of good work that went on behind the scenes that Wayne certainly did, and I know that more than any because I've been in his position for 10 years, albeit over in North America. Um, and sometimes you don't get the fruits of your labor.
1: How, how do you deal with that as a team then? So, obviously, at BC United, as well as you know, Birmingham City, there's a sense of uh, all, all eyes on Wayne, really, because he's a superstar, and there's always that pressure of can he replicate what he did as a player into a management role, you know, the external noise. How would you cope with that as, as kind of a team to try and make sure that you stay focused and focus on, you know, process-driven goals rather than the external yeah. things that are happening?
0: Well, you look at your leader and he was the leader and he was so single-minded. He was brilliant. Like, the, you talk about the pressures in football and things like that. You got to remember, he, he moved from Everton to Man United and he played for one of the biggest clubs in the world at such a high level. He was England captain. Record goal scorer up until recently, you know all of these things. He dealt with everything. So you look at it and you go, losing a game of football, losing three games in a row, not able to break this this uh, scheme that we're in. How do you deal with it as a manager? Well, he's done it all. He's been there. He's done it. What he needs to do, and he's open to do, is get as much experience as he can. You know, being manager at Derby County was not easy, and he when when he opened up on it again. It's his journey and his story. When he opens up on it, some of the stuff that he's dealt with is incredible. You don't get that on coaching licenses. You don't get that on, on scripts. It's dealing with the moment, dealing with the person. But the, the key thing that I will say working with him was he's just a normal person. He's a brilliant person. He'll do anything for anyone. He's caring. He's loving. Obviously, he's got a wonderful family, but he sees the game in such a, such a way, which I learned so much from him in the 12 months that I worked with him.
1: Why do you think it ever worked out at Birmingham? Was it the situation? Was it a lack of time? I'm just interested on why you think that never kind of come about. I'm just interested in what you think. Do you know don't. I don't think there's one thing. And I think the biggest thing in football, sometimes you're always looking for the
0: why. You know, when you're a manager, you are going to either get sacked or you're going to leave the football club. And then when a decision's made, you have to respect the decision. So again, I don't think there's one factor to it. At the end of the day, we know that football is a results-driven business. We didn't win enough games within that period. And I think Wayne will be the first to enough to admit. Uh, but there was a lot of work that was going on behind the scenes that he was doing to try and move the club forward. And I think he did that. And obviously now the decision has been made. You you respect the decision and you move on. But I've got no doubt in my mind that Wayne will be back. You know, he's a very driven person as he's shown in his career, footballing wise and coaching wise. You know, he doesn't take easy challenges. You've seen that with Derby and at DC. You know, I think people forget sometimes that DC United, prior to Wayne going in, were bottom of the table. You know, and he took them to the verge of two points outside the playoffs coming into the last game of the season. So from where they'd gone to where they were, we ended up, and yes, we missed the playoffs uh, by two points. But from where they were the previous year, you know, he made significant strides. And so that was a, a success in my mind, a success in his mind. Um, and that was just 12 months, 18 months into his journey there at DC United. Sometimes clubs fit and sometimes they don't. I think you've seen in the championship now with Darren Moore leaving, it happens. You don't know why. You're looking for the why. There is no why. You have to accept it. You move on. You know, at the end of the day, even if you win games of football, sometimes you lose your job. So if you don't win games of football, sometimes you you have to move on.
1: I'm just interested on the process of, and again, I don't want to bring a negative tone to this, but obviously getting told that you're going to be sacked and that kind of, you know, pressure that happens, you know, uh, in the media and, and with fans, et cetera. What is that process like for you, Carl? Like, are, are you informed as a team? Do you have a meeting? What does it look like? I'm just interested for, for those that might be listening to that. Well, f- first of all, I'll say I don't think I've met a person that actually enjoys
0: being sacked. Uh, I will say that. It's never nice when you lose your job in, in any walk of life. Um but again, it happens, not just in football, it happens in every business, you know, if so there's there's two ways you go. You either leave yourself to explore something else, another opportunity, or you want to go and get financially rewarded somewhere else better, or the the company decides to make a change because they want to go in a different direction. Um I think the first time it happened to me, uh again, when you're a player, you decide to move club if you want it's the same thing as a manager telling you you're not wanted at a football club and you need to go and get a move that's the same as a football club saying to you we want to go in a different direction with a change of with a change of leader or a change of scenery and things like that so um you have to become resilient to deal with it you know it, the initial thing is you're shocked you're surprised but after a day or two and your family your family is still there that your kids still love you the same obviously there's sometimes there's narratives that are put out there in the public domain which are right sometimes they're wrong you know and if you try and justify the ones that are wrong because uh you know you didn't think you agreed with it you spend more time and energy trying to justify something that you don't need to justify you know and sometimes nine times out of ten the story doesn't get told and you have to accept that and that's why I would I say to this day Jose Mourinho is one of the best at losing his job and just getting on with it you know I saw he signed with Adidas the other day brilliant he's smiling yes he's been financially rewarded, I think, with a number of times by a number of payouts from a number of clubs. He wins. He's a serial winner. I like him, loathe him, love him, hate him, whatever you want to do with him. He's left his job five, six, seven times. He's been sacked twice. So until you're a manager and you've been sacked and understand what it's like, it's not nice, I said. But the process of it, I don't know behind the scenes. What I do know is sometimes you can see it coming, you know, and there is a little bit of noise, I assume from a club perspective, the the club needs to have in their mind what is going to be the contingency plan. If you're going to make changes, like if you're a manager and you want to get rid of a player, if I decide I want to get rid of you because I want a different profile of player, I've got to have identified the player, stouted him, seen him, spoke to him and know he wants to come in before I can move you. Otherwise, if I can't get him in that, I need to keep you on side. So all these things, so nothing changes, I think, whether you're a player and you're being told by a manager or your manager being told by a club or you're a club owner and you're looking to sell sell your football club. I don't think anything changes, but it is never nice when you lose your job in any work of
1: work, work in life or in any company. That whole process, because it's so common, you know, that it's interesting from my fan's perspective to see how that actually works out, you know.
0: And the only probably best analogy I can give you is sometimes there is no why, because people will say, right, it is strictly done on results. Okay. But if you're doing well, it's not done on results. Is it the style of play? Is it the identity? No, okay, well, you're playing good football. Is it a clash of personalities which Josie gets labeled, but every player that plays for Josie that does well wants to play for him until then he's set nearly at crunch time and then suddenly there's one or two that come out. So all of these facets that come out, there there is no one reason. And you cannot as a coach and a manager spend hours and hours and days and weeks trying to figure out what what you do need to do as a coach as a manager is self-reflect did I do this well enough can I do this better right would I have done this would I have changed this did I have people around me sometimes you know you go into a football club and and you look and you want to play this certain way and players can't do that do you change too quickly sometimes you go into a football club and you uh, very rarely go into a football club when clubs are winning and if clubs are winning and doing really well, then you think, right, do you want, to, you have to change it because you're a different way, because you see the game differently. You've got a different style, a different identity, a different mindset, a different mentality. So you try and change it too quick. Or do you go with the old? Well, if you go with the old, then why was there a change? So again, you have to put your stamp on it as a manager. You have to put your stamp on it as a person. You have to be you. You have to be true to who you are, decide what you want to become and be, and stick to it. What you can't do as a coach I think is chop and change and if you don't do that whether you keep your job for three years, three months, six months, six years, it's out of your hands because everyone has a boss and the boss makes the decisions at the end of the
1: day. Do you think that was a challenge in terms of you being at Birmingham? You mentioned the different types of context of where you enter a football club. Obviously Birmingham was doing okay during that time when, before you came in. I and obviously the context is different. Is that something that maybe challenged you in terms of how you approach the situation?
0: I, I think with any, any football club that you go, in, not just Birmingham, with every football club that you go in, there's always challenges. There's always ways that you want to try and improve certain areas, whether that's individually, collectively, whether that's the team shape, whether that's the formation, whether that's pressing high, whether that's mid block pressing, whether that's defending deep, whether that's trying to defend on the halfway. All of these things come into play, and they're all openly discussed. But Discussed by the staff. You know, in hindsight, you look at things and say, right, I could have done this, could have done that, shouldn't have. But you can't live in hindsight world. If you live in hindsight world, which doesn't exist, um, everyone's perfect and they're not perfect. So, Mm. is it, is it, I think there's a lot of self reflection going on, not just with me, but obviously with everyone at Birmingham. You know, I wish them nothing but the best. Like you said, if good people at a good football club, it didn't work out for myself, you know, because I come in with the manager and I've left with the manager, which is totally fine as well. Um, And you want all your clubs that you've worked at to do well. You know, I never have a bad word to say about any of my old clubs, whether it be DC, whether it be Vancouver, Western Sydney, Newcastle Jets, and then your playing career, Toronto's and New York's and things like that. I want them to do well because you meet good people along the way. Though, you know, but don't look for the why. There's no reason to look for the why. Self-reflect, have a look at what you can do better. You know, next job you take, you try and change things because if you do the same thing and it's not working and it's the same thing and it's not working... Human nature says that you might need to change something.
1: So what's this process like for you then, Carl? Self-reflection, are you kind of having informal uh, conversations about the game, formal conversations about the game? How do you develop yourself whilst away from, you know, the role of a a head coach, et cetera, and obviously you mentioned time to reflect. You mentioned the way that you absorb knowledge from documenting certain things. I'm just interested in how you keep, you know, contemporary during this period.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's it's totally different, which I said, between being a, being a manager and being uh, an assistant because the assistant you follow, you follow the lead set by the manager. In, the, in a manager's mind, you, you're you clear with what you want to do, how you want to play, areas that you want to put, work on, things like that. Assistant, you're there to support and supplement what the manager wants. You know, the extra little bit of uh, training, the extra little bit of planning you do as, a, as a, an assistant because you give ideas, you present them to a manager, and then the manager decides yes or no. So it's it's been actually a really, really enjoyable time for me. But the last 12 months, two years I'd be tw- two jobs that I've been away, just taking a step back from it because I love football. I love being on the coaching field. I love training. I love getting to know the players. I love getting to know the staff. I love interacting with people. Cause, you know, culture's a culture is a big thing in football. You know, I think everyone knows in 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 Major League Soccer, when I was the manager there, I we had 15 South American players, Central American players. I love the, the—they would come in every day, whether you lost a game or won a game. They would come in, they would dance, they would sing, they would have the music on. You know, they would always be laughing and joking. And and then you you use that culture and you bring it over here to an English football locker room. And if you've got 15, 12 to 15 South American players, Central American players and you lose a game of football and you and you're a manager and you go in and they're dancing and singing in the locker room maybe that's not what you want you know when you go away with the national teams the central south americans you know you see them walking singing dancing along to their games so you have to understand cultures and i enjoy going to club visits i'm going to to belgium this week i'm going to spend some time with with a friend of mine over there at a top club in belgium you know i've been speaking to technical directors. I've been speaking to sporting directors to see in their minds, you know, what they're doing, how they work on a daily basis, the challenges they have. You know, I've done all my coaching qualifications. That's things I'll, I'll look at different avenues to learn because the day you stop learning, I, I watch games as fans and I watch games as as an analyst. You know, I have in my head, well, why is he doing this? You know, everyone's talking about the inverted fullback at the moment, and I think a good uh, a good game to watch yesterday was Liverpool and, and Arsenal. Alexander Zivchenko plays as an inverted left back on the side. Joe Gomez plays as an inverted left back for Liverpool, and you look at that and you think, well, it's the same way of building up in a three. You know, Man City do it in a different way in relation to a centre back steps up when they build with a three, but they got the pace of Carl Walker on the outside to stop transitions. So all these little analytical knowledge. Relate, related things you can learn, I'm always taking notes of. I'm always watching games. And, and if you learn something every day, you're going in the right direction. And uh, When you speak to people and you're open and honest and, and you ask them why and you're inquisitive and you speak to them properly, you don't know anything. I've never met anyone that knows everything at the moment. You know, They don't know everything. And the top managers, if you actually listen to the way they talk after games, they very rarely give you much tactical information knowledge after games they don't they say very little um, but when you go in and see and work on the training field the amount of knowledge the amount of detail they go into is incredible and then in a 20 second clip after a game whether they've won lost or whatever they give you very little so you only see little snippets of things so now during this period I'll spend as much time as many hours as I can learning uh, in, being inquisitive, asking people questions tapping into people's minds and seeing different cultures in different countries, different ways of playing, different styles, all of these things, because my next job, you know, whenever that will be, will be, I'm sure a challenge again, uh, and you look at it and I want to embrace it. I look forward to it and be full of, you know, full of energy when I go into it, because I think that's what you need to do as a coach.
1: It, 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 it kind of leads on to one final segment of this podcast. I'm, I'm interested on, you know, your journey so far has been very impressive in terms of that playing career and working with uh, different cultures, different countries, and then coming back to the UK and, and applying that and, and continuing to apply that and develop. Where, where, where's the next stages for you? You mentioned, you know, assistant coaches, head coaches. What, what What's your kind of ambition then, Carl? Is this something that you have set out for yourself to to try and achieve? I'm just interested on uh, what potentially the next stages for you will be as a, as a coach within the professional game?
0: Yeah, well, I like, I like to learn. I'm a worker. I think anyone who knows me knows I'm a worker. I like being on the grass. I like putting, you know, if I'm not working, then my mind's going off on different tangents and I don't like that. So um, I, I'm, I'm learning Spanish at the moment, which is a big thing in in this break that I'm having. You know, but when you say whether it's assi- whether you're a coach, assistant coach, whether you're the head coach, obviously there's more role, there's a bigger role or responsibility when you're the manager. Uh, assistant is different because you're there to support. You know, because I've been brought up in the in the US and Canada and the background of the the salary cap and that lot, uh, my mind is being active as the uh, technical director. And, you know, I know uh, what I want and how you work in relation to that. You know, I've, um, I'm probably going to get on the sports director course, uh, which I think is a big, uh, big interest to me for bigger picture stuff. Because when you're a player, you want to be player of a successful team. When you're a manager, coach, you want to be a manager. When you're a manager, then you say, right, okay, you clearly you know you want to be a manager, and you're really good at being a manager. When you've worked in the salary cap and budgetary side of it as well, you understand that you can work within budgets. You understand how to deal with people. You lead people that are not on the training field you know I've done that with Vancouver as well now I'm talking about going out of my comfort zone a little bit and learning the sports directorship course which is another great course about giving you avenues within the business so suddenly now it's not just the football is one part it's the commercial side it's the it's the tickets it's all of these side and supporters it's the brand it's all of these things it's about the club model that you want you need to generate to accumulate all of these things tick a box for me, they, they interest me, you know, and I said that, I spent a lot of time when I was Australia and COVID and in DC with the academy, you know, spend hours and hours with the academy coaches, with with the academy directors, with the, with the kids, because I just love football, and I was always, I look back at when I was a young, youngster and people who helped me and why they helped me, and I look back with all the experiences I've had in the game, and I just think I want to help people, I've always helped people, whether I played, whether I was not in the well, not in the team, pushing the players in the team, whether I was in the team helping the manager, whether I was then the coach helping the manager, whether I was a manager and I wanted my staff to help me, whether you're a technical director, you know, you rely on people. Uh, and that's why the biggest value that I have is be true to who you are, treat people with respect, treat people as you want to be spoken to, do every little thing correctly, and then just lead in the right way. And if you do that, I think you're on the right way to where you want to get to. And, and people's goals are different. I like to do things differently. I liked, which is why I've traveled the world and people say, well, we'll look at what the experience that you didn't have this and didn't have that. Well, when I come to England, I've won the championship twice. I played 500 games. Most of my games were in the championship. So I know the championship. I've been out of the country for 15 years, but I've been working as a coach since I was, when I went to Red Bulls as a player coach at 33 years of age, I'm now 47. So 14 years I've been involved in coaching. So again, you just need something that takes your fancy that you want to try and tick into what's next for you. So again, it's an open-ended question. Do I know clearly what I want to do? No, I will work in football. I know I've, I've I've had some opportunities that I don't think are right. The one thing I will do when I go into a role, I will fully commit to it and immerse myself in it. I want to be in that role. I won't want to take an academy role. And three months, three weeks, three months later, jump into another different role because it's ahead of what I want to do. I want to then commit myself to the next year, two years, three years. That's where my mind's at at the moment, which is why they say, always take a little step back when you leave a job.
1: Excellent, Carl. Carl, I just want to say thank you for speaking uh, to me on this podcast. Um, I share the same values in a way, of, again, from a working class upbringing, and I think it's uh, enlightening to see, yeah. you know, your passion and your dedication and your enthusiasm for football and coaching. And I just want to wish you well in in your next steps, wherever that might be. And like I said, thank you and, and good luck in the future. Thanks, Chrissy. Pleasure.